Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Kanye West released his latest album, Jesus is King, on Friday, and The Ringer is breaking down every angle on Ringer Dish, including where this album ranks in the Kanye canon. And on our website, we have a site-wide exit survey with our instant reactions to the album, and Micah Peters and Rob Parvilla giving their analysis as well. You can find The Ringer Dish podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and our written Kanye content on theringer.com. The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you to Yola Tango, as always, for letting us use their music in the introduction. I have a couple shameless self-plugs. Last week, Momofuku announced the release of a three-pack kit of our Momofuku Season Salts, shipping included for $28. It'll ship before the first week of December if you pre-order now. We've had a culinary lab for over 10 years, and it's been dedicated to flavor research, a lot of fermentation. And via that fermentation, we realized and learned that fermentation really is the building block to making food more delicious. And it's been a lot of work and R&D to figure out the right umami-rich ingredients and the right mix blended with natural flavors. And, And, you know, the two words I always think about when using umami is that it has to have roundness with the other flavors on your palate and balance. And we use these salts at our restaurants in a variety of ways. The savory is like a supercharged salt and pepper. It is my go-to to roast meats, grill steaks, anything that's a protein. I think this is just the better. It's like better than salt and pepper. It's also good with popcorn. We have a spicy that I like to put on pizza, but it's not just spicy. It's like balanced, right? And it's good on so many braises and soups and stews, even like noodles, right? Just a a little oil or pork fat and a little soy sauce, and it's ready to go if you toss it up with some scallions. And the tingly is something that I feel like I forget because in a home pantry, I don't always have Sichuan peppercorns. And... It's got the jolt of flavor and the spiciness without the burn and that mala, that sort of numbingness that is better described, I think, as tingly. It's so good on snacks. It's great on raw vegetables, but I like it on almonds. I love it on popcorn. And also, we we do a lot of different cures with it on raw fish at the restaurants. So, listen, you got the savory, spicy, tingly. They're all gluten-free. They're sugar-free. They're made from the same quality ingredients we use in our restaurants. You might think, oh, we're using MSG. We love MSG, but these products happen to only use ingredients that are naturally high in glutamic acid. I promise you we will be launching or selling or we have plans for our own MSG. All right, This is something I really believe in, and um, I'm excited about it. To figure out how to buy it, you can visit our website, momofuku.com, and and check on ventures and go that way. Or you can just directly go to shoppeachykeen.momofuku. That's shoppeachykeen, one word, .momofuku.com. Thank you, guys. I think it's a great gift for the holidays, and it's also just good to have in your own kitchen anyway. Also, we last week launched our new TV series on Netflix called Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner. It was with the same creative team and director from Ugly Delicious, Morgan Neville, and the team at Tremolo. 
We went to Vancouver with Seth Rogen, Phnom Penh with Kate McKinnon, L.A. with Lena Waith, and Marrakesh with the one and only Chrissy Teigen. It was a blast. Very surreal that it was even allowed to happen, and I hope you enjoyed it. I know we had a lot of fun filming it, and it's just exciting and and times nerve-wracking to have it out in the world. So thank you for the continued support. Uh, Ugly Delicious will be out soon. I'm not sure when, but when we find out, you guys will be the first to know. And that leads us to, you know, this idea of travel and food, right? That's what the show BLD is about. And to a lesser degree, I think Ugly Delicious, but travel and food and the sense of discovery. And one of the things I found that goes a long way in showing respect is to the people who cook the delicious food for me whenever I travel, is to take time to learn a few small but important words in their native language. So, for instance, I always get questions about like, hey, like, what do I say when I go to a Korean restaurant? I think you should just ask Google. Say, hey, Google, how do you say this tastes delicious in Korean? In Korean, that's... Knowing a few phrases like that goes a long way. Give it a try. Um, my next guest is the chief strategy officer of the James Beard Foundation, Mitchell Davis, a good friend and one of the people that have been very instrumental in my career and been someone that's really worked behind the scenes for as long as I know, shaping the culinary movements in America via restaurants and also globally as well. Um, this podcast is fair warning, very inside baseball, a lot of culinary talk, a lot of esoteric names, a lot of throwbacks to concepts pre-internet or not say internet pre sort of food media via the internet. So I don't want anyone to get lost, but if also this is something that's not for you because you don't give a shit about awards or you don't care about this kinds of restaurant, like, I don't know if this is going to be your cup of tea. I also don't know if you are not in the restaurant industry, this is going to be meaningful to you all because I don't know if we have anything similar to other parts of culture that what we're going to talk about. So a uh, fair warning, I'd hate to lose you, but just know that we're talking in granular detail about things that are really much ado about nothing, right? So just wanted to give you some context. And if you don't know what the James Beard Awards are, They've sort of been the one of the most important factors and awards and organization that can give recognition in food for the past two or three decades. I've personally benefited greatly from winning some of them. It can really make or break a restaurant, which again, take that with a grain of salt, but I know that's how a lot of my peer group feels. It can help your career in so many ways. And also, it's about having street cred. It's about being recognized in your industry. This is not about the point of view, which I think is completely valid about the frivolous, stupid nature of awards and all of that shit. I get that. But the reason why I wanted to have Mitchell on board was I have some issues of transparency with the Beard Foundation. I think that there are things that could be done better, and I think he knows that. I also think having this platform, I can be an advocate for friends in this industry that aren't loquacious, that don't have a soapbox to talk about their careers and to, and to self-promote. And oftentimes I talk to them and they feel like they get passed over because what they're doing is staying in the kitchen cooking. And they don't have the opportunities to sort of beat the drum and say, pay attention to me. And and that's always been the the cruel paradox in this stupid business is that 
sometimes the people that are rewarded the most are the people that are the most loud and obnoxious, like myself. So I, I totally understand that. And I, and I want to be able to make sure that people that deserve it on a merit get their recognition. And I don't know if that's always been the case. You know, the restaurant industry is changing. The landscape is rapidly evolving. And there's so many more mechanisms that dictate who wins these awards and who gets notice. And all kinds of old barriers are coming down while others are getting even stronger or being erected as we speak, right? Like, it's just a constant flux. And I don't think 15, 20 years ago, I would ever have the opportunity to talk to one of the gatekeepers. And Mitchell's one of the gatekeepers in food and food media and the awards and all that. Anyway, I digress. This is my conversation with Mitchell Davis, Chief Strategy Officer of the James Beard Foundation. You've been covering food, helping start trends or analyze trends, and you've been with the Beard Foundation for many years, and you are a central figure working behind the scenes oftentimes to develop the next generation of talent, to support all of these culinary movements. From your opinion, what's changed since you started? Oh my God, so much has changed. I think the biggest change, I, I refer to it as an inversion. There've been a lot of inversions since I started. You know, and one of the simplest I, is funny. I, When I was in school, I went to hotel school, which was a compromise. I wanted to be a chef um, and hotel school was the kind of compromise with my my mother, some reason, um, and a good one probably, but, but we used to dress up and put on suits and ties to go out to dinner and pretend like we were adults. And now all the adults put on t-shirts and sneakers and pretend they're kids. <laughs> and I think that's kind of telling of what has happened in food. And I think it's an amazing thing that's happened in food. And it's something at the Beard Foundation, frankly, we've had to wrestle with. We have ever been known since before I got there with just a few years that it existed before I got there. Um, white tablecloth, stuffy a little bit, even though we've been trying to change that, I that idea forever. And so that opening up, I think of food, I mean, and I think you are a central figure in that change, which hasn't diminished the craft or the quality or anything, but shown an appreciation for the taco, the panchan, the, everything has become part of what it means to be a sophisticated or an interested or participating food lover. That's been an amazing change. Something I don't think anyone would have anticipated. Is it healthier than ever before? What, what, you, what are you really healthier yeah. or do you mean societally healthier? Do you mean nutritious? No, or? no, no, no. Like societally. Yeah. Well, yes, but of course food has changed, but our society is not in a really healthy place right now. So it's it's hard to say it's healthier. I think certainly more people have more access to play in with food and to support what people are doing with food. But income inequality is huge and the pressures and costs on food for good food are huge. And the stigma of bad food is really bad. And I, I don't know, I, I, I think a lot has changed. Uh, ultimately, I think more people with more interest and paying more attention is good, but it comes with some some qualifiers and we need to, I think we have some work to do. Um, and what about the attention? When I first started, I remember sitting in the office when Tom Colicchio won Best Chef New York City and how just overjoyed everyone is. And then like you just, it was the only measurement stick on a national level, mm -hmm. was it a different time in how it was valued? Because it felt like it was the most important thing in the world at that time. 
In like 90, the late 90s, early on. The, the Beard Award, it, it probably felt like that for those who cared or watched or paid any attention, but so many more people care now. So uh, I don't know. I think it's a much bigger deal now. It was a small, I started the Beard Foundation in 1993. Food Network had, hadn't even started. It was the next, it opened, I think, a few months after I got there. And because I replaced someone who went to go work at the Food Network, Dory Greenspan at the time. And uh, I think a very small niche of people who cared about chefs or food or restaurants. They weren't invited in. Their voices weren't represented in the media. They they were, I don't know if everyone knew or felt they were excluded. It was this thing that happened outside. Um, and now so many more people, it's so much more part of the cultural ethos. I mean, I think Food Network helped. I think the cell phones, smartphones helped. Social media, everyone likes to hate them. And there are so many reasons to hate them. But I also think they really did change our relationship with chefs, change our relationship to food. We eat differently because of them. You know, we, we, we've been wanting to do this podcast for a while now. And when I have to think about then, when the Beard Awards were my favorite version of the Beard Awards at the good old Marriott Marquis, uh-huh. the best. <laughs> <laughs> Love them. We've worked hard to try to forget that, but okay. <laughs> um, and... You know, cooking dinner at a beard house was instilled to me when I first yeah. started as the most important thing that you could be honored to do. And it still is, but I feel like it's changed because there is so much more access. And the Beard Foundation, which I'd love for you to explain to a lot of listeners sure. that they don't know, I don't even know what it was. All I knew was it's important and you have to do it when <laughs> I was like 22, yeah, sure. right? And yeah. now it's changed because there are more access points to food. But that, I think, is interesting for a chef today or someone in the industry. Like, how has that changed, the beard's relationship to chefs? Uh, well, it's it's a great question and one that and it's my job as chief strategy officer is occupies the better part of my day. You know, for the, many chefs, you thought it was the place to be when you were new or you were told that in order to, I'm going to presume and put words in your brain, um, to arrive, let's say, one of the things you had to check off was cooking at the Beard House. For hundreds of chefs, that's still true. Even though the whole playing field has changed, there's still a little aura of the Beard House, which in some ways we have to wrestle with because we would like it to feel a little bit more democratic, if you will, without losing any of its shine. And we work very hard to walk that fine line. But now we're actually hearing, interestingly, internationally, people want to nut- put a notch in cooking at the Beard House. And, and um, you know, we've been working on bringing, trying to find ways to get chefs from all over the world in a different way, because there's nothing quite like what the Beard Foundation is anywhere, um, which isn't to say that today now, chefs are cooking with each other in restaurants, at events, at festivals all over. So 30 years ago, 33 years ago, when the Beard House started, Tasting menus that you did not have an option for were not common. In fact, everyone thought there was no way we were going to be able to serve, pay, charge money and serve people tasting menu. That's changed. Guess chefs flying around to do dinners all over was really uncommon, frankly. And it's not like we invented it. We only had what we could do. But 
the world changed around us. And so I think as an organization, what we face, the biggest thing that we face is all of the change and the way that we've had to redefine a value proposition for chefs and for the industry, which is the focus of everything that we really do. The Beard Awards get the most attention, but the programs we've started, whether it's about uh, gender equality, not just in cooking, but in ownership and trying to find ways to support diverse voices. I mean, things But you've that- been spearheading that for as long as I've known you to put an agenda that's not just the Beard Awards or dinners at the Beard House throughout the year, the calendar year. Yeah, for sure. But but we finally, I think all the pieces have come into play over the last few years and and the industry and the corporate world has caught up and, you know, America has gone where it's gone so that you can't avoid having more, bringing more authentic meaning to everything or you're just, you're just not part of what's happening. So, so yeah. What I've always loved about Mitchell, and if it's very clear just that we started this podcast, is he's a real intellectual and he he's a thinker. You you think in a way that I feel people still don't do enough of in this business. I I, I don't disagree. <laughs> you know, and and I love hearing it. We are a hand, yeah. Although I, it's the doing part that's the unique part. Like it's funny. Uh, I went to graduate school to study food, and I loved it. But what was missing was that unique knowledge that comes from cooking and handling food and and feeding people, which I think is the place we have to explore our power as a community to change. There's something that happens when you see things grow and you turn them into delicious stuff or you even put chemicals together and make things that people consume. There's something unique about that that little um, ecosystem, if you will, that I think um, I think we collectively need to need to understand even more and realize the power of. And so much has changed mm-hmm. that it would be too hard to talk about it. That's a dissertation that someone needs to write as to the, it's just nothing's the same when I started no. in 2000. It nothing. is fundamentally a whole new world. Of and, food and of the world. I right. mean, look at America, look at what's <laughs> going on right now. I mean, everything has changed. Yeah. Yet I think our value system still hasn't changed and that's no one's fault. That just takes time to change. And one of the things that I've spoken about to you and to my other peer group in this business, because we're trying to find some solidarity, is it's too fucking hard. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things about the Beard Award and just the dinners and just in general was the ability to showcase the people that work hard and to give them the spotlight that they deserve. And there's too many people that never got the recognition they deserve, right? And, And part of that was just old way of thinking. But now we're in a place where there's transparency and there's, you know, anyone can have a voice and that's what's so great. But I feel like the chef community still is lacking the solidarity mm. that we could, I like, it's more of an, a platonic ideal, right. right? Well, there is still business, right? And I mean, we have found, as an organization, and as you've alluded to, we we have changed and sort of realized that there if we start from the belief that there's some power that food or the food industry has, and and that's a power to make people healthier, to strengthen communities, to do to make business more more localized, to sort of support a, a community and an economy that isn't necessarily global and anonymous and digitized, but analog in some real material way. And I know that's a big if, but if we start there. We've been fi- trying to find ways to engage with chefs and the rest- larger restaurant community 
um, to use that power to make some change. And and I, it's it's funny. It it sounds cliche, which is it's anything but. But we have a smart catch program that's about if you're a chef and you care about the ocean and you care about fish. We have a, a way to evaluate your menus, the way you purchase fish, the things that you decide to serve, and to and we provide help from fish experts to help understand the sort of supply chain of your fish. Whatever, the, a lots you could go a lot into fish with us. That's new and that's not interesting to everybody. And certainly, you know, you talk about the challenge of business. One of the maybe one of the farthest things from what you have to do today is decide whether or not your fish is sustainably raised because you've got six people that didn't show up and you need a new dishwasher, et cetera, et cetera. So we're fully aware of that. As an organization, though, we actually have an opportunity to figure out how to help bridge that the craziness between what your values are and what you want to do, what business is really like, what policies we need to support businesses that are doing things right or trying to do them right, trying to pay people well or trying to serve better food or do all of it, God forbid. And then this crazy environment of rent. And I mean, we're sitting here in a beautiful um, space that requires so many other things that are not built into the this little restaurant model, which never really was sustainable as a business. So, I, I mean, th that's why I say when we feel like we are there to help the industry figure out all of the challenges that you guys face, sometimes not as quickly, sometimes not as not as individually as might be seen as useful, but from 10,000 feet, 15,000 feet, I think there's a real opportunity for all of us to collaborate and, and sort of realize that power we have. It's bizarre because, you know, on the one hand, it is just dinner. On the other hand, sometimes it is just an expensive bottle of wine or something. But, but as I think we all sense inside of us, when you sort of do something authentically with intention, I mean, you are the master of this, it resonates with people in a different way. There's some power there, explicit or implicit. And that, I think, leads to change. We we eat really differently than we did. We don't always notice how how our eating has changed. But I mean, at the Beard Foundation, we look at all James Beard cookbooks, and they're not all relevant because we just don't eat like that. You don't put a stick of butter. Well, maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> you don't put a stick of butter in a sandwich the way he calls for in recipes, which doesn't mean there isn't inspiration or value to them. But but we do things do change pretty drastically, even when we don't notice sometimes. 20 years overnight. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, it's funny. I'm sounding Pollyanna-ish and I'm not at all because I'm also a realist. And I, I recognize that you can't, in addition to all the things we have to put on everybody to do, um, changing the world is, is a big one and, and not everyone's responsibility. But I think, I mean, and I think a lot of people in food agree that can just start with breakfast, you know, like what you eat for breakfast. And if it's good in the biggest way, meaning of that word, I think there's power in there. I don't know. Um, I'm feeling philosophical today, <laughs> and, and I'm happy to hear it. But you know, I, I go go back to think about when I started, and you had the Beard Awards, mm -hmm. you had Food and Wine, and New York Times. That was Esquire or, list or Esquire something. List, a few lists or whatever. The reality yeah. was on a national level to get recognition. Yeah. It was the Beard Awards and Food and Wine Best New Chef. To me, that was basically yeah. well, it. Um, this is before the cell phone, as you say, that the cell phone and social media and the internet fundamentally altered access to where something good was. Yep, absolutely. And I remember thinking, you know, like I studied so much, all the different territories and the different chefs that were nominated. And that's how I learned about Dean Faring or someone like mm -hmm. that. Like it was crucial to me to find that and to see who got recognized. But when I think about it then, in weird way, 
to be recognized, you had to do something extraordinary because there was no media. Right. Yes. Like it was weird. I don't even know how you got recognized. How That's the hell funny. did anyone get recognized? I don't really know. I think about that sometimes too. But there were also fewer places to look. I mean, one of the, I think, a really important advent of the distribution of media, or if you're in media, the <laughs> revel, whatever, the destruction of media, whatever you want to say, is that. Now, as you said, you can find things that you wouldn't normally find. I mean, the answer to Google would have been the Jane and Michael Stern and Road Food, who had to write a book every few years and travel every mile of the road to tell people about something they art saw. culinaire, food arts. Right. These were ways you could find out. But even out. then, in urban centers mostly, you could only exist in a... With, with a great restaurant and some unique vision, you could only exist in a place with a density and affluence to support it, and also knowledge of food to such an extent that they would support it. Now, I, I cannot keep up. And we have more information than ever, but where there's a dynamic community. I mean, we hold meetings all over the country in Asheville and Nashville and Louisville, all the Vils, all the whatevers around the country, Bozy and Buffalo. There are chefs, there are producers, there are social change activists working in food. There are There's a community of people who support them aspiring to do more and do better in a way that I don't think anyone could have ever imagined. I mean, they're still in urban places and it's still hard although for all the reasons that you guys know better than I you can you can live a different life in another town you know that isn't New York or San Francisco you can you can sort of have a life as a cook or in the business in a different way so there's that push or pull I would say but then once you get there you can finally mostly cook the food you want Pittsburgh Pittsburgh has such a dynamic restaurant community you can't really get there from here you know like you've got to fly and the airport's still an hour outside of town for some reason and we have chefs really passionate about all kinds of stuff so I agree with you. It's completely changed. Like when Corey Lee won Best New Chef in 99 or 2000 or 2003, right? I love that you have the dates, which I could never pull out of you my know, head. Like, yeah. I mean, he was a legendary figure yeah. and he's my one of my good friends. But I almost feel like the people that were so amazing, because there was no communication, like it was all word of mouth, right? Like you had to do something extraordinary. I don't want to diminish anything that's happening today. That's not what I, I don't know if I can even articulate it clearly, but I know what you you know what I'm trying to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I do. But I again, I feel like you have to you have to step outside anyone who was paying attention. The number so yes, you had to be extraordinary, but there was a smaller playing field and fewer people right. noticing. Now the playing field is huge, and it's really become global in a way that as an organization we are sometimes challenged with dealing. I mean, I'm, I'm our global ambassador and it's a big world out there. And, uh, you know, and the country is big enough. The U S is big enough for that to be hard to sort of understand and know what's going on. But now the chef can, I mean, you are, when I, I remember after, uh, Sambar opened, I was in Paris with a group of food people, some historians, the Hymans and, um, this guy, Benedict Boget, one of the great food thinkers of France, the only person they want to talk about was David Chang. They had read your New Yorker profile and you were a star among the food intelligentsia in Paris instantly. Like that's revolutionary for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, that anyone in France knew anything was happening <laughs> about food in America, but that it wasn't a French restaurant in America, although not like Eric Repair isn't a celebrity in France too, but you know what I mean? So, so wow. And that was before the advent of everything. So the plates were changing. The tectonic plates were change, shifting. And then I think they were aided by, every, I mean, I was sitting, I'll never forget sitting at Next in Chicago 
Um, I was eating there alone, as I often do, because you're on the road and you have to have these wonderful love, you know, experiences on your own, <laughs> often very long. So I was became friends with the the young kid sitting next to me, a group of four. And next is was is um uh Grant Ackett's restaurant that changes the menu and the totally. whole concept of the restaurant and the the period and historical whatever references change every season. And this was a group of 28-year-olds who met, they lived all over the country and they met for every one of his menus. There was nothing like that happening, you know, and we can hate them. We can think, oh, they're spoiled and rich and whatever, blah, blah, blah. But, but that's the sort of participation you need to support a really dynamic, innovative or meaningful food community. It can't just be a few people who have enough money and just want a, a scrambled egg when they want it, how they want it. You need an ecosystem. So, so the changes, I mean, in my time, I, now I sound like I'm 110 years old, but it was my birthday yesterday, so I can do that. Um, have been amazing. I, I agree. And it's harder and harder. Ironically, and this is true in media too, where I think also in food media, especially, there are more voices, again, to your credit also with Lucky Peach, more diverse voices, better writing, more intense, more intense stuff. I, I mean, we are in such a heyday of food writing and food media, and yet no one can make a living at it. The, the business model doesn't work the same with restaurants. Never been more interest, more exciting, whatever. They actually don't work. It's a broken model. And we'll be lucky if restaurants still exist with people who convey food to the tables, as you know, you know, in the future. And you already see that sort of service being taken away. Like people are getting rid of servers. People are getting rid of staff. You know, McDonald's will prove to evermore be the, the greatest restaurant in the world for its efficiencies. And uh, ironically, you know, for its models of sustainability through a, a lean supply chain, you know, all the sorts of things that they've taken advantage of. Um, there's something to be said for that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura CEO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having a hard time finding qualified applicants, as we all do in the hospitality business. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Today's show is also brought to you by Great Jones, a startup that makes the cookware I use often at home. There's a reason why I'm an investor. Grace and I make oxtails in their cast iron enamel Dutch oven and spaghetti in their stainless steel stockpot. Great Jones products start at $45 and their whole set costs $395, a great value considering the quality and the look of the pots and pans. I'm excited that they can make high quality, beautiful cookware more widely accessible. Upgrading your tools is one of the best things you can do to improve your cooking. And Great Jones makes it easy and clear. Go to greatjones.com and use the promo code DAVE, D-A-V-E, at checkout for 15% off. That's D-A-V-E, 15% off. That's an amazing discount for the upcoming holiday season. If you're all set at home, Great Jones Cookware also makes for a really nice gift this holiday season. If you care about how your food tastes, you should care about your cookware. Again, greatjones.com, 
code DAVE, D-A-V-E, for 15% off. Go check it out. And now, back to the show. So, I want to get more into this, right? Let's the do future, it. The future food, but I, one of the reasons why I, I wanted you here is because of this whole zeitgeist change in food. And I've been so humbled and honored to win you know, several beard awards that I never thought would even happen. And it's something I, I I don't take for granted. And I'm now in a place now where I never thought I would be like, a, I don't even know how to say it because I don't feel old, but there are a lot of younger people in the business that are like, what's going on? Or can I talk to you? And I think that the number one thing with the next crop of chefs that is really struggling, they are struggling very hardcore with, which is, I really think the same struggles that every generation of chef Mm -hmm. has struggled with, but it's now different because as you say, awards matter more than ever before. More people are following it because it is a cultural currency of a younger generation. They're like, you can be critical of the, these things, Dave, you're, you know, maybe I could be seen as biting the hand that fed me, but I feel bad when people are like, how do I get the recognition? Like, do I have to play the game? And I'm always shocked at the caliber of chef, like three Michelin star chefs that say to me, how do I play the game? Mm. And it's not nefarious on the beard. I'm, I'm not, what I've thought about it is it's Spit moving, it out, Dave. Tell me what it's you're moving so fast that no one at the beard house, including yourself can get a hold of what the fuck is happening. And I think the intentions of the beard house are true and altruistic, but I think there's there's certainly a lag in terms of how people feel left out, hmm. even though that there's a sense of inclusion or the sense of competition. Like if you get a bad review, which I've had, or y- you see your whole self in that, like you're so narcissistic at a young age, and I believe a lot of chefs are at that younger age, that your whole value hmm. is put into an accolade. And when they're told that, wait, I can maybe get a better like deal with investors if I get nominated or I win, or I have friends that have never won a beard award, but they've been nominated more than five times, right? Mm -hmm. Like it is something that they feel like is a failure to them. And this is a problem I think with any awards Mm -hmm. type of stuff. Like I think that the mental stress and toll that it takes on chefs, that the very thing that the James Beard is trying to support is actually crushing them. Mm. Well, we I, there have been some very vivid stories about that. And in fact, we just published one online. Uh, uh, the question of the pressure and anxiety uh, was actually about a television show about Top Chef. We have a chef who sort of wrote about his kind of mental breakdown after being sent off of Top Chef, because as you say, so much of your worth can be tied up in that recognition. Um you know, I don't know. It's funny. I, what I want to say is it's tough out there. Um, it's a difficult world. And one of the things, you know, that, that when I see young people engaging with social media that creeps me out a little bit is, is that need more than a desire for the, the feedback loop that like, I am worthy because this many people have liked this thing. And we all know that that, you know, look at who's running our country these days. If if your feedback loop is all you pay attention to, you end up doing crazy shit to get noticed. So I, I understand the anguish that can come from needing to needing outside recognition. And, and as you mentioned, also the really very real um, business career boost investment confidence that, 
that recognition, like a Beard Award, gives you. But but I would say, and you, when we started, you mentioned it. You know, as an organization with limited resources and even more limited um, human resources, although we've expanded more in the last few years than we have the whole time I've been involved, we are trying to find other ways of recognizing, of engaging with the community that help in exactly that way. So we've added, we, this year we've even added more Beard Awards, which I hope we get to talk about also. We, we um, added two regions. So we've divided the country, which was in 10 regions into 12, which legitimately means 40 more restaurants will be recognized every year as semifinalists. 10 more nominees will be um, awarded and two more medals will be given. So there's there's that many more, of course, in the sea of 300,000 restaurants or whatever there are in the US. That's not a lot. I totally recognize that. But also we're trying to, make if if you are in, as i said earlier if you're interested in for some reason uh, particularly sustainable seafood for a very good reason because we ought to be um there's a way to engage with us that gives you an entree into a kind of broader spotlight if you will that we want to find a way to shine as bright as as anything but and- mitchell that's great but i know my chef friends yeah. they want the fucking recognition man and and yeah, it's tough out there, but this is to me like it's a, I don't want to say it's, there's inequity in it, but it's just an imperfect system. Sure. I, I mean, I, the irony, I'm involved in two very important food award programs and I hate awards in that I went to camp where everyone won, you know, like I, you kind of hate that too after a while, but we would have color wars and all the teams would win somehow miraculously every year. And that, that to me, maybe it's the Ontario, it's the Toronto upbringing that, um, that makes me feel that way. Reality is the world doesn't work like that. Some people arise to the top. What we do, what I do, and in the last couple of years, when I became chief strategy officer, the awards sort of ecosystem fell under my direction for the first time. And I've learned a tremendous amount in the last few years. And this year, in fact, to get to your point, we've doubled the number of nominees in Best New Restaurant because we know five is nothing, 10 is only a little bit more. There's probably a hundred restaurants that open this year that deserve some recognition. Right, um, but like, and you know, because I, I, yeah. I have been critical of this is, because I've been able to spend time and I haven't even talking about anything else. Uh, <laughs> but like, we're in California now, we have a restaurant and I begin to see how LA chefs or California chefs in general are like, oh, we're going to get fucked over. I never really, I was always like from a New Yorker sensibility. I was like, whatever, come on. Now I can see it as like, well, you know the travel patterns, right? It's pretty yeah. easy to see the travel patterns if you host a festival, if there's like uh, whatever. Like yeah. any city that hosts a food festival, more than likely the organizer are sending invites out to influencers, voters, and whatnot. And that's part of the game. I get it. But still, like, it's harder for people from the East Coast to come out to the West Coast because there's just more shit going on on the East Coast. Sure. So how do you get accurate representation? Because, I mean, weird because I'm also, like, (laughs) in this still, right? So, like, of course I wish Major Domo won. But honestly, I was like, you know what? If Major Domo doesn't win Best New Restaurant, I really hope Bava wins. And if that doesn't win, I really hope Angler wins. And I'm also like really close with the guys at French Chat. So it was weird, but I know I told Riyadh and and Lee, I was like, you guys are gonna win. There's no mm. question in my mind. And that's not to diminish that restaurant because I love it and they know I eat there a bunch, but it's just how the travel patterns go for a lot of people too. But I don't want to diminish it, but I'm just like, how do you get an accurate representation of who's voting for what and who's going to what? Well, 
let me explain a little bit how it works. Just, I don't disagree. Travel patterns are probably the biggest obstacle and the reason it's hardest to find a restaurant that isn't in a place people go. It's really hard. But the way the voting happens for the Beard Awards is a committee with a bunch of recommendations from up to 15,000 people give us recommendations. And then the committee creates what we call the long list, the semi-finalist list, which is as many as 30 restaurants or chefs in a category. That becomes a ballot and it goes to the judges. And the judges are previous award winners, anyone who's won an award in the past. And we can get into some complications about that. Each committee member for a region has to choose 20 to 25. It depends on the region and the population judges in each region. So there are the same number of people now that California is its own region, which is one of the new things this year. There are the same number of people in California as there are in New York and New York City in the judging pool. And that is, I'll tell you, the most uh, responsive, highest rating of voting pool of all of our pools of judges. And there's about 260 of them this year, give or take. And then there's the committee themselves, which is just the same votes as everybody. And I think it's 18 people. And each of them comes from a different place. So the actual numbers of people voting are not that different from region to region. Where they go and travel outside of their regions, I don't know, honestly. So how can a restaurant that, say, opens up in Arizona and winds up, you know, listen, after Noma and Copenhagen like and LBE, like people will travel. But I know it sounds frivolous, hmm? but the recognition to chefs, even though I think most chefs are like, oh, fucking awards. It means so much to us that it's hard for people to endeavor to do something out of the sandbox and do something new, which although, is what it- Sure. Although if you, I would tell you, if you were going to open a restaurant uh, and one of your sole purposes or objectives was to win a Beard Award, I would say go to Arizona. Uh, because <laughs> one of the things we're constantly up against is how do we diminish the shadows cast by the giant metropolitan areas, which it isn't even just that- the judges go there because the judges are really dispersed around the country. We could even give you a map. They're, they're everywhere. It's that what happens there catches the kind of zeitgeist or the enthusiasm. So the second year after the Beard Awards, we created New York City as its own before my time. We, New York City became its own region. Um, and of course, New York City casts a big shadow for the first 15 years of the Beard Awards, partly because it was its own region, but also because it was where so much was happening and where the media was based and where the attention was. So that's to answer one of your earlier questions. How did you know about anything? There was a real complicity between media concentration and restaurant concentration. And that's something academically I've studied. It was the subject of my doctoral work, my dissertation, because in France, in 18th century France, food media was as important as restaurants rising. And in 12th century China, same thing. There was always, if no one tells you about anything, you're just eating calories. You just consume your alone, basically. It's, <laughs> it's nutrition. So the, me the role of media is really important there. But now we've carved California into its own region. And so this year, we went from 10 to 12 regions, California, Texas, and New York State are individual regions, and then the rest are sort of geographical. So what that did, it made the competition probably no less fierce in California, but it certainly made it a little bit easier out of the shadow of California in Southwest, in Mountain, and all these other places. I wouldn't recommend that that's what you do if you, I mean, that if you're only opening your business to win a Beard Award, even though I know how important it is and what gratification it brings, you might want to think about why you're in this business. But yeah, I mean, our job is to constantly even the playing field. And one of the things I've learned in the last few years that I've been had to pay much more attention is no one's ever happy with what you do. Be 
And I think that's probably sad as it is because I think aspiring to something great is always the best, but aspiring to the place where nobody is, is happy is probably where you want to be because then everyone is equally as unhappy, one might assume, and, and you have some equity. So I know you've heard my solution to a lot of these, and it's never going to be perfect, but how come it can't be just totally transparent? Because I've talked to Bill Simmons and I've talked to sports journalists that are required to vote for the NBA and also for the Major League Baseball Cooperstown Hall of Fame. And the NBA does all of their voting to get rid of homerism and any bias for the All-Star Awards first team, second team MVP, because that has significant impact on now players' um, contracts because there's like, you know, mechanisms that get unlocked for them to make more money. It's actually not that unsimilar to a chef in some way. And again, not perfect because you could see how people might just vote for the favorite because they don't want to look dumb. But it got rid of a lot of the problems in Major League Mm. Baseball and in NBA where – people are forced to be responsible with their vote Mm. and they can't just be like, yeah, you know what? I love this person over there. So, and I haven't been there, but I like them a lot. So I'm going to vote or they just came out with the book and I saw them on TV and I'm going to vote (laughs) for them. And to me, that's not fair for the chef that's chosen to stay in their kitchen and to work Mm. their ass off and to make the food amazing. It doesn't get broadcast in the same way. And you know that there's a ton of chefs that just are not capable of promoting themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's it would behoove voters to just be honest about where they voted. Sure. So I've heard a couple of things. And I, I will admit that you having brought this up before has made us ask ourselves, and I don't have an answer for you. But I will say, because I, I actually agree, and, and as an organization, we're committed to making this process as transparent as possible, usually, and I just had to present to our trustees the details of the Beard Awards and how they work, and you could just hear the eyes glaze over. There was a webinar. Like it's There's a lot of details, and there's a lot of things that no one wants to dig into the, into the, the details about. Anyway, um, the reality is 640 people vote for the Beard Awards about, I mean, have they, are eligible to vote for the Beard Awards. All but 240 of those names are public. Previous winners and committee members are, have always been public. So, so it isn't a totally opaque thing. And one of the, the realities of the, the other pool, the ones we call the judges, those regional voters that we're trying to figure out, um, sort of, I would say the next phase of our evolution is what an impact of identifying those people would be like the fear is the opposite of what you've just described that um, if they're known, could they be courted or could they curry favor in a way that would make it less fair for those who have the means to determine? And well, I mean, I'm literally taking this position because I've spoken to chefs and I will always defend a chef's perspective as best I can. And it's the have and have nots. That's just the way life is. But when the people that choose to stay in the kitchen and to focus on one restaurant and to work their asses off and make beautiful food and not get the recognition um, because they don't know how to talk to people and they don't know how to do the press thing. And that's all, that's a fair amount. I think that's wildly unfair because in some ways it becomes a popularity contest. Well, voting happens. I mean, I don't, I don't disagree with you. And but how, I, and do you I, how can you verify that someone actually ate somewhere? Well, we, we ask, we have the, I mean, 
they have to sign a document. We actually, this year, one of the things we doubled down on, we were, we've heard there was some concern about conflicts of interest. So we actually have to have everyone write any relationship they have, professional or business with a chef. Well, um, I, this is why I say yeah. Mitchell's going to punch me in the face. You can get rid of all this if people just say, this is where I ate, this is when I ate, and this is a receipt. Uh, yeah, I guess. And, and like, or also it's like, I voted for this person. People will find out and like, no, you didn't. You never went there. You know what I mean? Like, you can only vote for the restaurants you've been to. Right. Well, we do say that every time you, I mean, there's an electronic ballot every time you hit submit for each category, we do ask. But you're giving too many freedoms to the voters, like that it can be manipulated. I'm listening. I'm totally listening. And I... And I'm really just defending it for my peer group that don't know how to talk to someone. (laughs) Okay. So, but but tell me, I mean, as I told you earlier, we're trying to find a way to get the feedback from people. And and you've known me long enough to know that criticism to me is the most valuable thing because we live in a place where everyone just says that's great and wonderful. And I know I say that from the Beard Foundation where people are afraid if they say something else to me that might jeopardize something of them in the future. But I can speak easy for me to say on behalf of the folks I work with who really do want to make this as good as possible from the eyes of the chef. Right. Well, first. I'll give you an example because I've talked yeah. about it. He's been on the podcast and he's one of many examples is like Josh Skeens. We both love Saison when he was there and Laurent's there yeah. now and he's a friend of both of ours. He is, I made fun of him because I was like, you're going to lose all three awards. You're, you're, you're nominated. I was like, there's no way you're going to win, Josh. It's not because you're not great. Right. It's because he doesn't do any press. I think what gets taken out of proportion is the fact that we have cell phone and we think that everyone does promote themselves in some way or communicate on social media. Because I know a lot of chefs that don't do any of that. Yeah, and I think that there is a correlation I'm, I'm, between people that don't do social media or don't do events or don't do dinners. I would bet my kidneys that there is a direct correlation to winners into the how much press you actually wind up doing. And the funny thing is we, we want to cherish the chefs that stay in the kitchen and do the right thing, but I don't know if they get the recognition they deserve. And I'm not, wanna, I'm not, I'm not no, being critical, you know? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what I think about that I want to look into it. I want to find us a way to actually see, to find a way to analyze it, frankly. Cause and that's what I mean, playing the game, right? Like, and the game for the Beard Foundation for chefs is a very different game than the top 50. World's best. Okay. It's a completely yeah. different game. Well, how would, game you, how would you articulate the, the Beard game from a chef's perspective? I think it, it's important to get a cookbook. It's important to like do dinners elsewhere to get your name out there, to win other awards, to get that national recognition, which was weirdly like when you got it before the cell phone era was like the only way you're going to get national recognition, even though it's a highly imperfect thing and stories were not being told by those that should have been told was by like, just, I don't even know. Again, like I don't have an answer, but it happened. And and now I, I don't know how that works because it, it assumes that all chefs are going to promote themselves in a way. Mm. And that's not the case. Well, I want to, it's funny because the thing that I think would be great to make the most transparent is the meeting at which the uh, restaurant committee, which is made up of a volunteer group of mostly editors, reviewers, journalists, restaurant journalists from around the country. It's 18 people, I think, is on the committee. Um, and they sit in a room for three days when they're going over um, the creation of the semifinalist ballot, and they are f- duking it out 
to create a list that if you if you go back and look at that semifinals list as we do very closely, we are not involved in the process. I've actually never seen the process. I've heard <laughs> it's not pleasant, and it's people who have eaten in a lot of restaurants across the country and are both representing those that they think are deserving in their region, but also all the other information that's come in the room. Let's say, uh, and they make a list. I defy you to not find the most interesting best restaurants on that list. And then voting happens, right? And so I'll tell you, because we talk about this all the time, one of the places that we as an organization feel like we need to do more work is what happens between that list of amazing, interesting, diverse voices, but also just, you know, like big list and how it goes from that to when the voting happens, it goes down to fewer and what that is. And honestly, I've... There is a little bit to your point of a popularity contest. Oh, I don't know these places. I haven't been to these places. I actually think it happens in the opposite mm. way than you think. I can't vote for them. I've never even heard of this guy making XYZ or this woman who's, you know, flipping or making, I don't know who they are, but, but I look at them and I think, Oh my God, I gotta, I gotta go there. I gotta write this down. If someone in this region is telling me this is a semifinalist, I need to, I need to pay some attention to this. So we, I, I want to, as an organization, you know, we don't control the voting. Our very, I don't get to vote. None of the staff gets I'm to vote. Not, Mitchell, I love you and I know that your intentions are always true. No. I just think the process could, could be more democratic. But I, but I was, but I was going to say, I just, that wasn't for you. It was for everyone else. I want to find a way to bring more attention to those restaurants that I don't know, that we don't know to do your very thing, to shine that spotlight on what we as an organization have our events, our invitations to the Beard House, our ways to ask you to participate, not so much because we need you to do it, but because there's a spotlight we have that we can shine on this place you don't know in this well, town you haven't heard there's of. There's no more American classics, right? Yes, there are. There are? Yeah. I've always more. felt like the American classics were the best award. <laughs> and I mean, if you looked at my beard vote, besides voting for the restaurants that are traditionally like in that list, I always put right. restaurants that are American classic. How would you define an American classic? Well, they have to have been in business for 10 years. They have, I mean, so the America's classics, oddly enough, or interestingly enough, is decided by the committee. So they're almost a product of that, that three day, like fist fight over what's going to be on the semifinalist because they come out there. The committee gets to choose those restaurants. But those are the, in my opinion, every time you do the montage clip or I've been to those restaurants, I'm like, yeah, that's like one of the best restaurants anywhere. Why don't we celebrate them on the same level? I know because that's just not how it's done, but that's a whole nother reason. It's like maybe we're valuing the wrong things. Shouldn't we value the most delicious thing? <laughs> the restaurants you want to go, like Arnold's in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh everyone says that's everyone, the best. Yes. The, everyone will say that's the best restaurant in Nashville. Even the chefs that have restaurants in Nashville, they'll say it's the best restaurant. Why would we put that on a different category? The hospitality that they have and show in that restaurant is as beautiful as anything I've ever seen. And I it's a one, it's a meeting three. Yeah. But it has to be categorized as something else. Who's the chef? I, I don't remember. And maybe like, if the Beard House put it as best chef of the South, I would know. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. I mean, I it's there's a there's a philosophical undercurrent to the the conversation. Um and this is something I remember wrestling. I was involved in in revamping the mobile travel guides, which probably no one has ever heard of or remembers, with a team from Cornell at the hotel school there. And it was like, do you believe? And and this was a fundamental categorical conversation. If you have the best taco truck 
and you want to give it four stars and you have the best fine dining restaurant and you want to give it four stars, how do you justify those two things? And I am in your camp. I want to say, doesn't matter, it's the best. It deserves to get the award. Before we go on, let's take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by East Fork. East Fork makes beautiful, durable plates, bowls, mugs, and more in Asheville, North Carolina, using regional stoneware clays. Founded in 2009 by Alex and Connie Matisse in a dirt floor mountain workshop, they've got deep roots in Southern craft traditions. It's a values-driven business committed to bringing solid, sustainable middle-class jobs to their Southern community by reimagining and dignifying the manufacturing industry. Their work comes in a gorgeous array of colors, from a palette of reliable neutrals to an ever-rotating cast of bright, happy, or statement seasonal glazes. They work with chefs and restaurant owners to make vessels that look great, stacked up tall in the past, and will elevate the most humble of dishes, and hold up well in commercial dishwashers. Whether you're microwaving leftover takeover on a Tuesday or plating an 18-course tasting menu, East Fork's pots play a confident but humble supporting role that make any meal feel at home. My wife, Grace, is an amateur ceramicist. She used to work for some well-known ceramicist, and she was shocked at the quality and the design by these. Truly, I was so thrilled that she loved them, because I love them, and we're going to use them in our restaurants. They're durable. They look great in the kitchen. And what more can you ask? Because you're supporting a good small business as well. You can tell that they're handmade and they're of quality. Most importantly, they're not going to chip on you. They're not going to break on you. I love East Fork. Looking forward to implementing them in our restaurants. Go to eastfork.com and use code Chang for 15% off your first order. And follow along at East Fork Pottery on their social media handles. That's East Fork Pottery, one word. That's eastfork.com, Code Chang for the website as well. Check it out. Alex and Connie Matisse, they're doing the good work. And now back to the show. Everything's changed, Mitchell. Like the whole, we've all agree that everything's changed fundamentally. The access to food, yet we're still pegging it in a wrong hole, in my opinion. But I'll tell you some feedback that I get from chefs, and it it pertains to this conversation and pertains to the cell phone that I'm looking at on this table. And that is, some chef has worked her entire life, staged in restaurants, worked in all the best places, found her investors, done the thing that she needs to do, and created a great dining experience. And someone takes a photograph of the meal when it comes to the table and puts it into the world and says, this is the best thing I ever had. And then someone sees a really cool looking cake, I don't know, that's in all kinds of rainbow colors and is whatever that someone made out of a box and takes a picture, puts it into the ether, says, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And that leveling of everything that happens until that point of consumption, which in this instance, I'm purposely saying is the photograph, has some chefs be like, why do I even bother? Why did I do this whole life? Because everyone thinks it's the same. I've just... I've just taken a picture and eaten them with my camera and made them the same. And I think there's some way we have to acknowledge them. I mean, I think when the America's Classics began, which was already probably 10 years into the Beard Award history, there were a lot of people who were like, what are they doing here? What are these rest? How can we, how can I we thought it was the best part Daniel- of the Me too. How do we have Danielle Ballou on the stage and these people who don't have never heard of, I don't know, 
a tornado potato. I, I say some crazy thing. I mean, I think we are in the midst of the transformation of putting value on those sorts of things. I agree. I love the America's Classics Awards. They make me cry. I, I write them down. That's where I want to go yeah. when I'm somewhere. But I, I think they're different. I, I actually, you know, when we talk, the best part about calling people that they've won the America's Classics Awards is often they hang up. <laughs> They, you cannot get, if they have a phone and they don't always have a phone, they're like, whatever, click. This is some, you know, you can't tell me anything. So I don't know. I mean, I think there, there's an industry and there's insiders and there's outsiders. And I, I, I'm not sure. You know, I, it's funny. Like, did Leah Chase ever win Best Chef Southeast or Southwest? Uh, ever, no, I right? think she won a Lifetime Achievement Award. Lifetime Achievement Award. Yeah. Why does she have to win a Lifetime Achievement Award when everyone will say Dookie Chase is the, the restaurant you have to go to? It is more important, and it's also equally delicious. I don't get it. <laughs> I have some French critical theorists you might want to read. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I My want friend, to know. Yeah. Pierre Bourdieu comes to mind. Um, yeah. Well, the reality is that the way that power moves through a field of cultural production is not fair. I mean, art is the art world is a, a much better, I think, correlate to the food world than than some others because. The value, and this is one of the American inversions. When we started, I was talking about how there were some inversions, I think. The value that we place on what people tell us is changing. Used to be the most important person in the food world was the New York Times critic in, in the US. And his or her purview was really just New York City, which is one of the reasons New York City was one of the most important places. You could argue chicken and egg, who was most important. But that was a really important moment. Things are changing. Things the fact that the New York Times, for instance, has a California restaurant critic, I think is huge for your California conversation. Like that, that's a game changer to me. Something is going to really invert the power dynamic of LA from those very things in the food world. And I think we're still in the sort of destruction of some of these power structures that are going to change pretty drastically. And I already hear rumbling feelings of it from the kind of European, mostly French, mostly male chef community. They're like, I don't know if this is my moment, let's say, if this is my time here based on everything going on in the country. And that's a reality that has very little to do with whether or not a judge ate in this restaurant or that restaurant. It happens to be the time we're in. The, the recent piece that um, Tejel Rao wrote about the great restaurants of Napa Valley would be really scary if I was one of those great restaurants in Napa Valley because she said they're amazing and I don't care. They said they were all perfect and I don't care. Yeah. So something's up, right? Like that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Something's up. Yeah. Right. And we need someone organization to keep the peace to, to <laughs> the peace. Uh, that's a big peace, job. Not even the peace, but like to tell people that this is actually like it's total anarchy, but there's, there's order here as best as possible. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at our Beard Awards this year, they were very different. Uh, or last year, I guess. We've opened this year. Earlier this May, the 2019 Beard Awards did not look the same. And again, we as an organization, we don't pick the winners. I, I know you're not judging me of that, but but the community of people in that room fighting for the semifinalists is different. They're younger. They're from a different background. They've, they've been exposed to food. They have not lived when there was not a food network and social media in some way. And so the conversation is really changing and it's messy. It's hard to keep up. I think to your point, it's not clear. You know, it's a little bit like the stock market. It's, it's things are not as predictable as we thought they could have been. So it would be hard for me to 
to say, oh, you should invest $15 million in a new restaurant now, whoever you are. And that's going to be the thing that everyone's paying attention to. Well, the New York Times, California critics said, no, it's not. We're actually going to look somewhere else. Um, and people are feeling it. And I don't, I don't actually, I, I agree. I think as an organization, we can help. We're not going to be stick our feet on the ground and find an old guard and say, French Michelin dining is where it's at. And this is what it has to be. And that's what's happening in France right now. I just came back from Paris and they don't really know what the fuck to do. I, I don't think where their center of gastronomic gravity is at the moment. This is where we might, if we get some things right, really emerge as that force of sort of gastronomic zeitgeist that I, we all know we have and has, is happening here. But as, as a culture, this is where American cuisine gets formed. It is in this, like what comes out of this messiness, this topsy turvy, this democratizing of expensive eating or cheap eating or, or sort of valuing of cheap eating. Like there's an opportunity here. I don't think we're through it. And I hope as an organization, we're here to help. You know, we, we changed our motto. Our, it's not really our mission, but it's our motto, good food for good. And we focus a lot on the for good to do things for good. But I actually want to focus on the good food. I think, how do we define what good food is? What is, what is American food? What's good about it? It's got to be delicious, but is that it? Is it enough for it to stop there? Does it have to be fancy? No. Does it have to be um, authentic? No. It has to be good. I think that's the opportunity for us to help shape. So whether that's with an award or it's with a program or an invitation to cook at the Beard House or just a conversation like this to say, like, there's got to be a place where we can talk about well, these things. People are scared, right? Like, Having spent time in LA a lot more and then seeing the first Oscar campaign, I've never seen anything like it. Wow. And a lot of my friends. And it's a year long process of hosting dinners, showing people the movies or TV shows. Same thing with Emmys. And I was like, oh my God, I was so naive to think that <laughs> they it's just a watch the movie and right? they watch the movie and th there's a winner. Couldn't be more wrong. Right. Interesting. There was. A whole game and a game behind that game to maybe make that we don't happen. want to be known as the Oscars of the food no, world. I, <laughs> maybe that's not the the but, place but, we want. But I, I really did see. I was like, actually, is this merit based? And does the best actually win, or is it the person that has the ability to affect change within a group of influencers? Um, the exclusivity of the award is not supposed to be where the value comes, the merit behind it, the intentionality, the authentic approach. We ought to have an award for everyone who's bringing that sort of philosophy approach to what they're doing. I don't think we're going to get there. I don't have that meter. I do think, and as an organization, after 26 years there, we're finding chefs and engaging them in a way, and I hear it from them too. I hear someone like Michael, um, whose last name I can't ever pronounce, Fotage in Austin say at a big event, I never thought I would be at a beard award, cooking at a beard award. I didn't think there was a place for me here. Olamai is his restaurant. And Olamai is an amazing restaurant. The first bite in my mouth is like, oh my God, this is great food. And he wasn't saying he didn't think he was good enough, I don't think. He, I think it wasn't important to him in the way he felt like the game playing was important to others. So, so I, as an organization, I can say legitimately, authentically, with intention, we are trying to find a way to do what you're saying. I don't think it's going to be, I know it's not everyone's going to get a beard award, but certainly we can shine a spotlight. We can engage with people. We can support people who are doing the sorts of things that we think should be done and should be models for others to do. I think there's, there's as much, if not more value in that ultimately, than the medallion around your neck. You can discuss. <laughs>
I'll just leave this on the beard award as this. It's it's very clear to me that you guys are open to ideas and suggestions, and it's fluid. It's a it's a moving target. Yes, agreed. Absolutely. In fact, we have said every year we are going to review what happened the year before. We've sort of built this into the system. Um, and before we make the announcement for the open call, which has happened this um, October 1st, we're going to announce some tweaks and changes. Uh, we exist because of and to support the restaurant and chef industry. It is why we're here. It's actually even why we're here after all of our history, because the, the value that we gave was important enough for a bunch of chefs to step in and, and help us continue. And so, so yeah, the worst thing would be if everyone said, oh, it's great. Yes. The answer, whatever it is, like we are an organization open to changing, adapting in a way that we think is sound for us, but also supportive of the broader community awards and otherwise. Right. You know, I mean, one of the things that's changed is someone like me having the ability to have a platform to talk about things that are going to be missed by the Beard Foundation, not because they're being intentional about it, just it's impossible to catch, catch every it all. Story. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like the fact that I can talk to you about this is like insane if you really think about it on <laughs> totally. a meta level. I, I, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's what, that, the, among those, the biggest changes ever. I mean, there were six people. We could have named them when I started in 19. I, they're still around. They haven't gone anywhere, but the world has changed around them who had any access to an audience to have an, a different opinion. Yeah. Um, but this is sort of how we would talk over a glass of wine or something. And on top of the Beard Foundation and how you've really been part of like this movement globally about chefs getting notoriety and the popularization of it because of your, this body, the top 50 awards. Mm -hmm. And best way <laughs> I can sort of summarize this is, and I've been joking. Now it's not a joke. It, it was something, again, I benefited from. So I can sound hypocritical because I've certainly benefited from both. But when I see the top 50 award and I think it's a lot like Lord of the Rings, <laughs> you know, you, you without being a, if people knew what a sci-fi geek I was, but the you, number one ranking is the one ring. Yeah. And it is a, a power that is insane. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's, and it's, it's something that draws everyone in and it really is that it's the closest thing I've ever seen. It's interesting. And all the, top 10 to the top 15 they're all the lesser ranks right yeah i i don't know what to say i don't disagree it's a weird sense i'm like you with the beard because i do get to vote for world's 50 best it's not my award and i pick places that <laughs> i just makes me laugh to imagine that they're on that list yeah. because i love them yeah and and i know everyone would i you know when you send folks there you do but talk about the influence of travel if you don't the world is a big place and there's a lot of restaurants in it so I, I remember, may he rest in peace, Stephen Shaw was a critic who was a very thoughtful person. We disagreed on a ton of things, but he coined the important phrase, the Zagat effect. Um, for those of you listening who don't know what Zagat <laughs> was, that used to be a really important guide we could have mentioned. Um, that was a, And it was about how the rankings were a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy because once a bunch of top restaurants comes out, you want to go there and those are the places that you've just been to. And when you vote and you, if you're honest and I, I see, I disagree. I, I mean, I could be totally naive, but I think people don't vote for places they haven't been as much as we want to believe, but let's just assume 50, 50 that you go to those places because they're on the list. So 50 best or any list, like suddenly you have to decide where, what 50 restaurants you're going to eat in this year. And 
chances are you're going to go to some on the list unless you have access to some other opinions, yours or a friend, a local friend. And they're like, should I go to this place on this? Like, no, 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 let me take you here. And it's tough. But has the top 50 outlived its usefulness? Yes, it's more popular than ever before and all that stuff. But is it making it better for chefs? I don't know that that's how they would define their usefulness. So <laughs> but maybe chefs. it's not. I I mean, I was a huge advocate in the top 50 for taking the number ones off of the list, both because of the pressure to stay there, which is unfair in a restaurant where consistency is also part of the game. And if you have to constantly close and reinvent yourself and do everything differently every six months for people to pay attention to you, that's just not fair, I think. But also because... You don't want the same people. You want, in order for it to be interesting and relevant, it has to change. Lots of things change in the food world, as we all agree. And so I wanted to find a way to honor those people who became number one, which in and of itself is an incredible achievement, even if it was largely a game played and succeeded, and then make room for more people to come. So I, I don't know what side. Sometimes um, that's the fan of chefs. But then, of course, the number ones who were not on the list this year were like, well, we're not on the list. Just like um, when I think it was Wiley Dufresne who noted that he, when he was nominated every year, he was part of the conversation. And when you win and you're no longer able, eligible to right. be nominated, you disappear a little bit from the world and it's a big shock. So I don't know. I, I mean, what's ridiculous to me is to think that number one on a list of 50 restaurants is, is significantly different from number two or number 40 if you're talking all the restaurants in the world. When they describe that list and they say, these are the restaurants that people are talking about, that I agree. The rankings, the, you know, it's like, like 11.1 versus 11.6. What's the difference between those two rest? Whatever. The, I don't know anything about the math, but, but I think the idea that they are incrementally better as you get up that list is a little bit absurd. But I think just the amount of attention that comes to it, both from the chef community and the global media community means it's still relevant and useful for something. Absolutely. Yeah. I have so many questions that I could be incredibly critical. <laughs> Can't of believe the top anyone 50. is still listening at this point. Yeah, oh yeah, my god! Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I I won't because like there's no point because uh, whatever. I mean, listen, no no list, no organization's perfect, and uh, the criticisms that are out there with both I think are valid and and the points that are there, and I know that both organizations are trying to address them. And again, it's not easy. I I wouldn't want to be in your, in your shoes. Well, the funniest thing I have to say was the redistricting. So we went from 10 regions to 12 and we'll continue to tweak. I'm not sure we'll expand. I can't see us expanding in the foreseeable future, but that process was so eye-opening to how complicated, how, how you can rationalize everything. We hired population and data uh, statistics experts, people who are specialists in restaurant data in particular. Oh my God. And with all that data, they're like, well, the data just tells you what you want to see. And we're like, well, how do we know what we want to see? You know, like, like it was so complicated. And you knew as soon as you were looking at what you were trying to do, it's just complicated. It's, you think it's easy. And, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to uh, curry attention or support for what we did, but I think that we came to a place, um, that, gives more opportunity for more restaurants to be acknowledged who are going to be worthy of recognition. And that was our ultimate objective. And I think we've achieved that, but it's an imperfect process. America is a beast of size and population and density and even affluence that leads to all sorts of things and inequality that leads to other things. But it's wild. You think it's clear, especially, and it's especially complicated. And you'll know this, what I'm about to say so well when you care about the outcome mm. you know like when you really recognize that the decision does impact 
people's lives, people who are working really hard against the odds in small margin business, all the sorts of things. So when you actually care, it's even harder to make the decision that you think is right or justifiable. And that's why, again, like I admire you because like I know you care. But I can't say the same for a lot of people. I think you're one of the few people that actually Appreciate care. Appreciate that. I mean, I, I work for, with a lot of people who really care at the Beard Foundation, I have to say. Um, we disagree, although we don't disagree about caring. I mean, we have this, our internal word is chefs first, which is, I mean, it's funny in a chef's organization, but you could probably attest it wasn't always the feeling that the chef's community had that we were a chef's first organization. But that phrase, chef's first, comes up in so many conversations, decisions, whatever. It's like, this is an industry that has the weight of the world on its hands. The funniest part to me when the Me Too moment broke, and I know we're not going to go there, we're towards the end of the show, but was like, okay, so Hollywood um, and the food world are the two places where we're going to fix the gender inequality on earth. And I think that that was a hysterical and impossible recognition of some value, cultural value we have in this moment and the responsibility we have to do things better. Like, wow. And the organization, I think, felt that pressure because the world, you know, brought attention to it and sees us every day eating, walking by in America's Classics, the same guy who had lunch there every day for 40 years who's in all of those videos. You know, like, like there's a real recognition of the importance we think of restaurants and chefs and food in general in our communities and our personal health and our local economies and local culture that that I think we all feel. And I just, on behalf of them also, they, they really care. doesn't mean you always get it right. I could talk to Mitchell forever. And um, I have one thing because I'm always shocked when I talk to Mitchell and he gives me an answer that's way more, um, it's never as optimistic as I think he's going to give, <laughs> right? Like it's almost more doom and gloom than I could even imagine. <laughs> What's the future of food? Like, not just the food, but like restaurant food. Are we going to be around or is it going to be, you know, a handful of restaurants, highly funded, and then everything's delivered? Or is it just going to be total anarchy and, you know, McDonald's wins? Well, here I go. I, I don't know. I don't know. We Are you optimistic? I am optimistic because I go to college campuses or I talk to 14-year-old activists and people are caring about things that I think will have a positive influence on food and on larger things in a way that certainly my college classmates didn't. Um, so I am optimistic because I do see younger people caring about things that I think are really important. I think as a culture, we have to redefine what business success looks like, what expectations investors can make on their returns. Like what I think we have learned and where the food system has broken down. And I've argued with uh, uh, someone much smarter than I about this, who says the system isn't broken. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It just doesn't care about people. Mm. Um, and I, and I can see that to some extent. And what, where I think it breaks down is when we try to treat food as we treat other things and exploit everything we can in it to make money. And it already is precarious, our food system, what, what money can be made in it. And at each one of the opportunities to make that money, we take something out of the system in terms of, of profit. And I think until we realize that you can go too far and people can get sick and communities can get sick by that exploitation, until we realize that, and we're on the verge because we see it happening. I mean, if you include water in food, then we see that all over. And I think we have to realize that food is actually something different. I began by saying, I think there's some power in there that's inherent in the cooking and the kind of magic of growing a carrot, peeling a carrot, cooking a carrot, or eating it raw, whatever you want to do. Um, I think 
we have to recognize that it, it food is sacred and a kind of public good, and then there will be a place for restaurants to exist. But the model, the old model, which hasn't changed much since 18th century France of making money out of restaurants and supporting them in ways that make people rich and, and keep people poor, basically, is not going to work, I, I don't think. Well, we're going to have to have you back on again <laughs> and give everyone uh, a big history lesson because this is a whole conversation of food that doesn't happen, at least to the general public. Yeah, no, not, not and, a lot of places so for important. it. I think it is important. It, uh, even there, I see glimmers of hope, though. I moderated a conversation today about food waste. And I, w- I was sitting in a UN meeting a couple, I'm sorry, I'm going over, we're going over. I was sitting in a UN meeting a few years ago where they were trying to get people to be interested in food waste because of climate change. And I was the voice in the room that was like, climate change, we can't even agree there is climate change in our country. How can we possibly use climate change as the reason to get people to waste less food? And in two years, I hear on the street, in the grocery store, people make that connection. It's like the straw, you know, you use a straw suddenly, no one ever thought about using a straw before. And now you're a pariah. You've just killed six fish because you took a plastic straw. So we can change these things, even though they seem hopeless or too big or too messy and no one really cares. And then overnight, everyone's embarrassed about a straw. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but I, I feel more optimistic about the shift happening in some meaningful way than I've ever felt before. And that's a weird thing for me to say because <laughs> I'm too much of a realist sometimes, as you note, to feel that way. Um, I never got to thank you for the... When we spoke about Nishi a lot on this podcast, and I got fucking pummeled, rightfully so. But the only person that got what we were doing, there's probably a handful, was you. You, know, I, you wrote about an art eating, <laughs> and I never thought you I thank you enough because I was like, it's there, someone sees it, and it's you that saw it. So that was really meaningful. Uh, well, thank. It's funny because I was there not too long ago, and it's like, wow, it's really different now. <laughs> it's been some time, but yeah. yeah. Well, I've. I mean, I admire you. Not this is a, a Mitch and Dave love fest, but you ask hard questions. You ask questions people think and don't ask. You give criticism that people want to say or give and don't give, and I think that that's what makes things better. I mean, whether they're restaurants I, or or communities, <laughs> like I, I really believe that, and. So what you did at, at Nishi, or we're trying to do at Nishi, had a, a very particular intentionality to it um, that if you didn't see, you thought, well, this is just some bad Italian restaurant. I don't know. What, I don't even know what you thought, but it wasn't what you intended. So I think there, that finding that resonance is really would behoove us all well to figure out how to find that, how to create that meter. Need more Mitchell Davis in your life. That's how you do it. All <laughs> right. Get you out of here. All right. Thanks. 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 Well, hopefully you stayed to the end and you listened to the conversation with Mitchell. I know it jumped all over the place and it got a little maybe dense at times, but I'm not satisfied enough. I'm just saying, I think that James Beard Foundation should go fully transparent with how it does its voting. There's nothing to hide anymore. And uh, hopefully one day they'll get there. Thanks again, Mitchell. Um, want to get to, I think I'm just going to do one Ask Dave at uh, MajordomoMedia.com questions. Charlie Walp asks via giving us five stars on our iTunes podcast page. In your new series, Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner on Netflix, there's a scene with Seth Rogen in Vancouver where Seth tells you your greatest talent, his greatest talent is writing, and it's the thing he does the least. He vows to change that equation. You appear to have a moment of clarity and say, I should only be working with food. Was this scene filmed before elevating Marguerite Mariscal to CEO? And if so, was this conversation a catalyst to making changes in your organizational structure? Uh, 
I will say, while I was very, very high, um, this was filmed before technically elevating Marguerite to CEO, but this is a plan that we had in place about four years ago. And um, I didn't know if it was going to happen, but I'm glad that it did. And I think what Seth was talking about in that moment when we're eating uh, that beautiful Cantonese barbecue at HK Master was the fact that oftentimes you're in these opportunities and you create these roles for yourself that are fun and engaging and challenging. But by the time you actually create the role and you're able to execute it, you realize it's not for you and it's for someone else to do. And I feel that way all the time. And it's always about trying to do whatever's best for the company, not doing what's good for you. And I think one of the things I've learned about maturing as a business leader is that the growing up process means you never get to do the shit you actually want to do. And I think the easiest thing for me is to not, there's nothing easy about working with food, but it does give me the most joy. And I think what I was trying to say is how do I find that balance? And since then, Marguerite Mariscal has been the CEO. And I'll tell you, I feel a different sort of, <laughs> it's all a work in progress, but I will say that I think everyone that knows me knows that I need to be working with food. And uh, I think she's allowed me to do that. And uh, I'm working more than ever, ironically, but uh, I am spending more time doing R&D, talking to the chefs and working on dishes or more specifically producing. But at that moment, I remember very clearly that that ability to empathize what Seth was talking about is that sometimes you get stuck doing all this stupid shit and it's good to be able to take a 10,000 foot view of what the fuck's happening and to realize that maybe you need to get back to where you started. And the funny thing is I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing all these things and I'm still trying to find time to cook. And maybe that's not necessarily just restaurants. Maybe that's making food for my son or making dinner for my wife. And I'll tell you, like cooking at home uh, has really rejuvenated and rekindled my love of cooking that I never anticipated before. Um, I'm going to get to Stephen Enke later. I promise you, Stephen, next week I will answer your question about pastry chefs. It's 1.30 in the morning. I just watched the Nationals win uh, World Series. I am deathly tired. It's been a long day. As I said, I don't know when I have time to do these podcasts. We recorded the one with Mitchell like a month and a half ago, but a lot of times we do these, these the intros and the outros at a later date. And I'm going to go to bed, guys. Uh, take it easy. Give us five stars however you rate this podcast. Thank you again for all your support. Talk to you soon. <laughs>